Welcome to This Is Not About Your Body, where we talk about all the real shit body image issues are actually about because they're never just about the way you look. I'm your host, Jesse Neeland, and today I have with me Chrissy King, who is a writer, speaker, former strength coach, and educator with a passion for creating a diverse and inclusive wellness industry. She's also the author of the book, The Body Liberation Project, How Understanding Racism and Diet Culture Helps Cultivate Joy and Build Collective Freedom. I also knew Chrissy uh, from back in the day through the fitness industry when I was a personal trainer, uh, and I've loved her work for a really long time, so I'm super excited to have her on here. Welcome, Chrissy. Thank you, Jesse, for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. Yeah, me too. Um, I always kind of start out with like the basic question. You can answer it however you want. Um, Tell me a little about your own story and the evolution of how you came to do what you do. Absolutely. So I came into the fitness space, I think the same way a lot of people come in. I just wanted to be skinny. Mm -hmm. No other purpose for joining the gym except for I want to be thin. Um, Prior to joining the gym for the first time, I had a history of yo-yo dieting, doing all the things to try to, you know, shrink my body. And so when I went to the gym, that was my attempt to like, oh, let me finally get this right so I can just be thin once and for all. Um, and so started tra- strength training, um, which eventually led me into powerlifting, um, which I actually really loved and competed in powerlifting for quite some time. Um, and powerlifting for me helped me a little bit, just a little bit, start to think about my body differently in terms of like, oh, it's more than just an ornament for decoration. Yeah. I started to get really strong and that felt really powerful. Um, however, at the same time, I was still religiously counting my macros and like really working hard to make sure that yeah. I'm a certain physique, even though I was in the strongest body I'd ever been. And so it was through that process where I'm the strongest I've ever been. I'm the leanest I've ever been. I'm in the smallest body I've ever been. And I was more miserable than I'd ever been. And I think that's when I realized that I could literally spend the rest of my life in the same cycle if I didn't change something. And that's what led me to really starting to work towards working through my body image issues and just really starting to think about where I'm getting my worthiness from and what makes feel worthy in the world. Um, and that was the process that led me to healing my own relationship with body image and then led me to the work that I'm doing now. Yeah. Ooh, such a relatable story. And I feel like so many people in the fitness industry, even if they are not on the other side of it and wouldn't admit to it now, that is their story still. Yeah. I think because again, when you're in the fitness industry and you have a certain physique, right. And you're quote unquote healthy and you're strong and you're working out people, people praise that, you know, and I, I also know that when I was in having the most negative relationship with exercise and food um, and body image, I was in the body that got the most praise and when I was constantly affirmed for the way that I literally, you know, I used to have people in like coffee shop lines be like, what do you do for a workout? Like, oh my God, your arms. And I was like, oh, these arms, I lift heavy. <laughs> like I was so proud of it, but that is, that was my exact experience. That is the same. I remember distinctly remember this exa- this situation when I was, I was married at the time and I was in an elevator and this mom and her daughter were in the elevator and they couldn't get something open. And they looked at me, not even my partner. They looked at me and were like, oh, look at her arms. We can tell she works out. She can probably open this. And I was like, wow, I had so much pride in that moment. I'm like, they didn't even yeah. ask me. They asked me to open the box. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. By the way, the fact that you did powerlifting, I never competed in anything, but uh, I always thought that was so freaking cool. It was one of the like badass things. And in my head, I think at the time, powerlifting was like so anti-beauty ideals that it's like a little bit funny to look back and be like, well, it wasn't really, it wasn't like this liberating, you can look however you want space for everybody. Uh, No, not at all, actually. And I think, again, because it's so... That community, although it's like really based in strength and power, it's still so much steeped in like what your physique looks like. And there's weight classes and you have to make weight and all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I know that one thing we agree on is how the mainstream sort of self-love and body positivity movement has really missed the mark. And I would love to get your thoughts just to share a little bit about uh, why you think that is or how that is um, the case. Yeah, I think there's a few reasons that I feel that way. I, number one, you know, I always have to acknowledge that the body positivity movement was founded by fat black and brown women because they didn't see themselves represented in mainstream ideas of beauty um, and mainstream, you know, body positivity movement. had, And it also had a, like a, an element of social justice. It was rooted in social mm-hmm. justice. 
mainstream body positivity and self-love has really lost all of that uh, social justice aspect. And it's even really decentered the people who created the movement. Um, and I think it's also this focus, hyper-focus on like self-love and just love your body um, is really harmful for a couple of reasons. Number one, the farther you are away from, you know, European centric, Eurocentric standards of beauty, the harder it is to even come to a place where yeah. you can quote unquote, love yourself and love your body when everything you're seeing reflected around you is opposite of what you look like. So it's a, it's a tall order to even ask people to do that. Right. Yeah. And then secondly, even if someone, you know, of a marginalized identity comes to this place where they are so unapologetically and wholeheartedly in love with themselves, that's awesome. However, that does not um, protect you from experiencing harm and discrimination because of the body you reside in. And so this idea that if you just love yourself, that's going to fix all the problems mm -hmm. on the individual versus we have systems of oppression that we need to dismantle that will allow all of us to live freely and to feel good in our bodies and to be free of harm in our bodies. Amen to that. Uh, out of curiosity, by the way, because uh, this happened for me, were you instructed when writing your book not to like dunk on body positivity too much? Actually, no. And I feel really grateful for my publisher. I'm with um, Penguin Random House, but an imprint called Tiny Reparations, mm -hmm. which is um, run by a Black woman, Phoebe Robinson, Two Dope Queens, the comedian. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they- huh gave me free reign to talk about anything I wanted to talk about my book and I feel like that was one of my one what made the publishing process so amazing for me is that they really let me speak my truth without trying to like change the tone of what I'm talking about which is not always the case in publishing yeah totally and I understood why I was given they, did, they didn't say like, you're not allowed to say certain things but they definitely were like um could you maybe alienate the entire people who like got something out of body positivity a little bit less please and I so I ended up turning a whole chapter into kind of like let's unpack why it didn't work and what's wrong with it you know and but I had to be like trying very hard not to dunk on it which ultimately I don't necessarily want to dunk on it but it's hard to talk about how problematic it is without being like yo this shit didn't work here's why it's messed up yeah. And I think it's, uh, you know, I think one thing that I always acknowledge about the body positivity space is the, I shouldn't say the only good thing, but one, <laughs> the only good thing. Now, one of the positives I think is that it does, it's an entryway for people to start thinking about their body, Absolutely, but it absolutely can't be the point at which people stop because it is so problematic for so many reasons. hundred percent. And also, I mean, they really do push certain things forward, like not legislation the way that it was sort of intended to maybe, but like representation and like really putting pressure on brands, which I love. So yeah, yeah that's kind of how I ended up framing it. it was like, it did a lot and it came from this place that matters. And also it didn't work for you to feel the way you want to feel because it wasn't meant to. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so you talk a lot about the Eurocentric standards of beauty in your work and how these movements are rooted in white supremacy. And I was wondering if you could explain if somebody's listening to this and is new to that concept, like how do you explain what that means or what that is? Yeah. So when I'm talking about Eurocentric standards of beauty, um, I'm talking about basically standards of beauty that are based in whiteness um, and that whiteness is the marker of beauty within our society. And that, that goes things from like, you know, physical features from um, ideas of who's perceived as beautiful or most valuable or most worthy of respect within our society um, to how we're supposed, how we're supposed, I'm putting this in air quotes, how we're supposed to show up in the world and what should we should be striving for in terms of our, how we look in our aesthetics. And so we're thinking of things like lighter skin and straight hair um, and thinner bodies. Yeah. And how has that affected you personally? I mean, as a black woman, who was never going to hit some of these check marks? Like how how did that impact your own body image or your own relationship to beauty? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I talk about in the book is like growing. I grew up in the '90s, right, and so I didn't see a lot of representation for Black women in in mainstream. I, I remember seeing like Pamela Anderson on the covers of magazines, right, and I'm yeah. like, well, I cannot be blonde, right? <laughs> I have blue eyes, but the one thing that I can try to do is I can try to be thin. And so I think that's really where so much of my desire for thinness, you know, is like proximity to privilege, even though I didn't have the language to understand that at the time. I'm like, I can't do X, Y, and Z, but the one thing I can try to do is I can try to be thin. Um, and I can try to achieve that aspect of beauty. So it sounds like it put even more pressure on the, the one thing you were told you could control because 
there were so yeah. many things you couldn't. Absolutely. And again, it's like, if the world is going to have all these, so I tell a story in the book about when I was in the fifth grade, um, I was at a private Christian school and I was the only black girl in my class. There was only two other, you know, black kids in the school, my brother, and my sister. And so I tell this story of being at a classmate's friend or a classmate's house for like a sleepover. And we're having dinner with her entire family and my friend, well, I mean, she's, you know, we're in fifth grade, so very young. Um, my friend says, out of nowhere, seemingly, um, my dad doesn't like black people, but he says, you're okay. And so I was like, oh, so people are going to have opinions and feelings about me because I reside in the type oh. of body. So what are the things that I can do to make myself right. more acceptable? You know, I actually don't know if you talk much about respectability politics, but that's immediately what that makes me think of, right? Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I talk a little bit in the book about respect po respectability politics and how I adopted it so young, right? And I didn't have the verbiage for yeah. it. Yeah. did it very young, so right? Young. So it's like, I'm in the school, it's a very small school. So there's like a class of like 20 kids, right? So my mind is, I have to be the smartest. I have to get the best grades. I have to prove mm -hmm. myself, right? I have to be the smartest. So my sense of respectability politics kicked in very young. Right. And then I feel like I'm just connecting this thought, which is embarrassing to do publicly, but um, I'm just now realizing that like thinness is a part of respectability politics. Absolutely. 100%. It absolutely is. And like, of course it is. I just, I don't think I ever like fully saw that as so clear. Yes, Absolutely. Wow. So I think all of those things growing up really informed how I came to this place of like negative body image. And then also just this, uh, yeah, desire for approximately privilege through the means, through the, the avenues that I had access to. Yeah. And in your experience with other black women, people, I guess, but mostly women, I'm thinking, do you find that that's pretty common that it's like, because these things are out, the things that are in your control become so much more pressing? I mean, I think it depends on your, your upbringing and your background, right? Like I grew up, like I said, I was in a predominantly white spaces. So that had like a very, right. on me. Um, I think it really depends on your positionality and what your experiences were growing up. But what mm -hmm. I will say is that I think for a lot of black women that I talked to and, and Jessica Wilson just wrote a really amazing book called it's always been ours, um, reclaiming the story of black women's bodies. Um, also for black women, you know, and for myself, I can say this too, is that I had a lot of shame around having body image issues because eating disorders, body image, like young, thin white girls are the face of that. Right. And so it's like, oh, you aren't supposed oh. to have. Oh my even, God. Even culturally speaking, right. It's not something that we're, we're like, you're not talking about eating disorders and body image issues as a, I'm not saying this is a generalization, right? Oh, yeah super prevalent um and black culture because it's like that's not our those aren't the problems that we have and so there was also a lot of shame that came along with just admitting that I was struggling with those kind of issues which right. you know my mom read my book um recently and she's like I had no idea that all these things were happening or that you were having all these types of struggles because it's just not something that I felt comfortable even sharing in my own household oh I mean obviously I know like struggling with body image and food just you know eating disorders and everything is shamey to different people for different reasons, but it's such a like one, two punch to be like, it's shamey. Like you have to feel shamey and then get into it and then feel shamey once you're there for being into it. Like there's no winning. Yeah. And even one of the stats I talk about in the book is that even um, black girls are 50% less likely to be diagnosed with eating disorders, even yeah. when they the same behaviors as other races. Yep. And so there's just, you know, so much that goes into it and that makes it more challenging to face the issues that you're dealing with. Yeah. It's similar with, uh, I don't remember the statistics, but it's similar with transgender people that they go misdiagnosed all the time. Yeah. Okay. So I know this is a very weird question to ask a black woman, but I'm going to do it. So I would love to hear your thoughts because I think it makes so much sense to me how someone who is like not checking all of these boxes that you look around and you go, I'm supposed to be checking these boxes. Checking these boxes makes me higher status and it gets me privilege and makes me worthy. Um, so therefore I'm going to focus on these couple of things that I've been told I can control. That makes total sense why these, you know, sorts of insecurities and obsessions would develop. But we also know how many people who actually fit all or most of those boxes still develop you know, these struggles. And I'm curious in your perspective, why is that? Yeah. So, um, I honestly, when I think about that, um, I think one thing I, I talk about in the book is that there's a, obviously a difference between having a personal body image issue and 
living and existing in a body that experiences systemic harm and oppression, right? So those are two different things, but I think all of us in some capacity have struggled with body image issues. And even if you're really close to those standards, you can check the boxes, right? And when I think about body image in general, and the reason so many of us struggling, it goes back to white supremacy. And so white supremacy, which is, you know, literally the air, the air we breathe. And Dr. Sabrina Strings has an amazing book called Fearing the Black Body, where she talks about uh, the inception of this idea of anti-fat bias and fat phobia going back to slavery. Um, and so the thing about white supremacy that is so insidious is that, yes, it affects some of us more than others, but it still affects all of us, right? And this desire for thinness is rooted in racism and it's rooted in white supremacy. And so regardless of how close we come to those boxes that we can check off, we have we are all living in a white supremacist culture in which we, and, and I say women, it's everybody, but particularly for women. Yeah tell women that the way we look is the most important thing about us, right? That being thin is what we should all be striving for. And not only, you know, so that's harmful for all of us and also it keeps us all distracted. And and so I I don't think it matters how many of the boxes you check when we live in this culture and we haven't dismantled and divested from those systems, it impacts all of us. Absolutely. Such a good answer. I I feel like sometimes when I'm doing uh, coaching work with thin, conventionally attractive women who are basically sitting there being like, I don't even know why I'm like this. Like, I know I'm like fine, but also I can't stop thinking about it. Um, I will do a lot of curious probing around like, where did you learn that you have to be literally better than everyone? Yeah. What system might have impacted or influenced that belief that you're literally worthless if you're not dominant yes just a lot of like "Mm -hmm." (laughs) anything I have ideas do you (laughs) you think this is coming from and again this is like why you know when I yeah of course I'm talking about bodies but also when I'm talking about white supremacy it's why it is so important for all of us to dismantle the systems Mm. because it really is harming all of us in so many ways that sometimes we can't even recognize right and so it's like when we treat work towards dismantling that system. It's better for everyone involved, right? It sets yeah. all of us free. Absolutely. And that's all of them. Yes. <laughs> all right? of the oppressive systems. It's the same. It's like men benefit from patriarchy, but they are still getting fucked over in their own ways. Yes. They should be so motivated to unfuck themselves. Yes, exactly that, right? It's like to be able to see how a system may be in some ways benefiting you, but is more harmful to you in reality. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so you talk a lot about ditching diet culture. Obviously, it's in the name of your book. Um, Could you talk a little about what diet culture steals from us? Mm, I saw you wrote that somewhere and I loved it. Yeah, diet culture, man, when I think about all the time that I spent invested in diet culture, it still, it stole so much from me, right? It stole my time. It stole, it stole my energy. It stole my creativity. It stole my pleasure. It, it, It stole like just the being present in my life. And so, you know, I was spending, you know, when I was like really in the powerlifting gym culture, I was spending 20 hours a week in the gym, just working out three hours a day, Sunday light day, you know, and I do like two hours and I could not enjoy food or going out with my friends because I was also so focused on like how many macros am I going to do how many calories I'm going to consume. And I remember being at like the beach and all I could think about is how do I look in the swimsuit, trying to suck my stomach in. And again, it's this weird thing where like, I'm at this place and people are strangers are affirming me and asking me like, Oh, you look so great. What kind of workout do you do? And in my mind, I'm like, Oh, I need to lose five more pounds. I need to change this part of my body. Right. Right. And, and then I say energy, because when you're spending all of your time focused on drinking your body, it literally drains the energy. And I feel like drained the life out of me. Um, and when I ditched diet culture and I moved towards liberation, I recognized how much mental energy that I had free to create whatever I wanted to do in the world or just to be present in the world. Um, and how much joy came back into my life. God, it's okay. So sometimes I find it a little hard to describe to people what like the after is for this kind of work, because when it's so present and it's so like dramatic in your face and just constant, it feels like really hard to even connect to what a lack of it would be. Yes. And it's hard to explain, like, as you have less of that, those, those spaces fill just with good shit. 
Like things that feel interesting, things that feel meaningful, things that feel good can just suddenly show up, but I don't know what they are for everyone, but it's like, that is what the after looks like, right? Yes, exactly. And sometimes you don't even know what it is until you get to the after, right? I definitely didn't. I didn't either. And I was like, oh. I couldn't even imagine it. Yes. And so it's like, it's, you're, you're so right in what you're saying. It's like, it's hard to like put into words to help people understand yeah. what it's like, but then you get to the other side and you're like, oh, this is what living life feels like. Oh, yeah. Okay. I also think there's something really interesting about how, like when you're focused on diet and body stuff, you, oh my God, I just completely, completely fled my thought off and away. Okay. No, I remember it now. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Um, when you're focused on all of that stuff, it's like you are suffering majorly, right? It's just a constant source of stress and distress. Um, and so I think a lot of people imagine that the other side, the after will just be like endless bliss and like peace and joy. And I always say like, life is still hard when hard shit happens. It's still hard, but at least, you know, you're dealing with the hard thing directly. And there's peace in that as opposed to funneling it all into this one thing and then having a meltdown about a problem you literally can't solve. No, no, no. That's exactly it though. Because I always say that I feel like for me, at least, and I, I know that other people have had this experience, but I'm gonna speak for myself. When I was like hyper-focused on my body and obsessed with shrinking my body, there were all these other problems happening in my life. Mm-hmm. The thing that I always focused on was I need to lose more weight, right? Because I can control that thing yep. and I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not ready to deal with all those other things. Yeah. And, but when I ditch diet culture and, I, and and then I'm faced with, oh, these are the actual things in my life, <laughs> yeah. right? which is still not easy necessarily, yeah. but, oh, but at least I'm dealing with the real problems and I'm not like fixating on my body as the problem because yeah. that's the whole thing that I'm actually, you know, needing to fix them or change, not even fix, not the thing I need to address in my life. Yeah. It's a little like getting sober, like all this shit that you were, you know, drinking or using drugs or whatever to avoid that stuff is there for you. Once you get sober, you still got to deal with it. Still there. However, <laughs> you have eliminated a huge source of like running in circles on a wild goose chase. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely agree with you. So what kind of advice would you give to someone who is like aware that they want to get away from diet culture or they don't want to be spending so much time thinking about this stuff, but don't know where to start? I mean, for one, I'm going to say that I want us all to show ourselves a lot of grace and compassion. That's like my number one thing that I always tell people because it is, it would be silly for me not to acknowledge how difficult ditching diet culture is when every day you're getting messages about the culture. So I think meeting yourself with compassion and grace is number one. Um, I think it's really also important to, as much as possible, cultivate your communities with people that can support Mm. you on your journey. Right. And so, I mean, that's in person with your friends and your family and having honest, vulnerable conversations about like, this is what I'm working through. And Mm -hmm. I would love your support in this journey. And this is how support looks to me. And so letting people know that. And then of course, you know, social media is its own thing. And I really encourage people to number one, I am a big fan of unfollowing, muting, anything that makes you feel a way about yourself, even if the person's not saying anything wrong, but if you're mm-hmm. watching content, feeling not enough or feeling like you need to yeah. do something to change yourself, that's a cue that this is not something I need to consume at this time because I need to protect my own mental health. Um, so I'm a big fan of that. And I'm also a big fan of like, you know, being aware of like, oh, when I'm engaging with social media too much, am I feeling down about myself? And yeah. if that's the case, putting boundaries in place is stepping away from taking a break from social media and saying, you know what, I'm not in the yep. mental consume social media right now. And I just need to take a break from that. Absolutely. And there's something too psychologically about like when the world you live in, the water you swim in is all fat phobia and diet culture then your brain is like never going to let you give it up because there is this deep primal fear that if you go against society, you'll be abandoned and die. Right. So I think building the community, obviously it's helpful in so many ways, but one of them is just sort of changing your idea of who everybody is so that you start to feel like, well, I know that it's not everybody who feels this way. Cause there's this whole other community branch of people who are doing this work, who support and affirm me. Um, I know for me, the first, my first delves into this coming out of the fitness culture was just reading books. Yes. Like I built community with the Absolutely. authors who were like blowing my mind in secret. Cause I wasn't willing to talk about it with anybody yet. 
One of the first, I totally agree. One of the first books I read was um, The Body's Not Apology, Sonia Renee Taylor, right? Yeah, me too. And the work was just so, her, her work was just so instrumental in, in my journey. And and again, it was like when I was just starting to have these thoughts, I'm like, I don't have anybody to really talk to about this right, yet. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to figure out. Uh-huh. So like reading books is such a great, and, and listening to podcasts, right? It's such a great place yeah. to just say, oh, oh, okay. It starts to make some of those clicks. 100%. Okay. So something that you also talk a lot about is the link between body image and self-worth, which is something I'm so passionate about because I think a lot of the body positivity movement sort of ignores that link, or I don't know, they, they don't acknowledge the, the importance of that link maybe. Um, so yeah. What are your thoughts on like how that link forms or what the relationship is between diet culture body image issues and self-worth? Um, absolutely. Again, I think I spoke to this a little bit, but like we very, I, I know for myself, I very much at a very young age got messages that mm, the way I looked in the world, right. Determines how I should feel about myself and also determines how other people are going to react to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so th like that being said, it's like, oh, that first time I lost all that weight in high school. And then all my peers were like, oh my gosh, you look so good. How did you yeah. do it? So the first thing I think is like, oh, people like me more when I'm in a thinner body. Oh, yeah. And so I, so that means to me, that signal that I'm more worthy when people like me more. And, and so it's like, oh, I'm going to keep doing the thing that's going to bring me worthiness because at that point in time, my worthiness was coming from external validation. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh, I want to keep showing up in the world in a way that makes people fond of me. And so that's what I'm going to do. However, there comes a point in time when you realize that and for me, what I realized is like, oh, actually this external validation isn't making me feel good anymore though. It's like, I'm getting all this external validation from the world and yet I still don't feel good inside. So actually maybe that's not the thing that I'm really seeking at all. Right. That's the it's thing. Like I being feel. rich in monopoly money. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh God, everybody thinks I look amazing. I feel yeah. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Right. Oh my God. I feel like this is something that a lot of people don't realize is the message, the belief that this all sits on how this gets so like linked up is that you are supposed to feel about yourself the way other people feel about you. Like that the expectation is other people's judgments are true and valid and meaningful and should form the basis of your identity and sense of self. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And that if the world, the world people tell me that I'm beautiful, that I'm, that my body is great, then that is, that, that, that means that's what I am. And right, yeah. when I'm not those things, then I'm not those things. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, and it's like, it, it's something that we have to like unlearn because again, when we think about bodies, one thing I always talk about as well is that the standard of beauty or what's the ideal body is something that's always changing. Yep. You know, I, I, like I was talking about this yesterday on social media, because it's like, there's never going to be a point in time where you can achieve this body, the achieve the goal body. And now it's like for life, you're just set because right. you're moving the target, right? Yeah. So I was saying also, you're going to keep aging and like being, and you're keep aging. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's just not possible to do that. Yeah. But even now I'm like, I think it's such an interesting like time period we're in because we have people, uh, like the Kardashians, right? So yeah, who popularized black and brown features on non-black bodies and made this the the, the quote popularized the BBL body as the in body right, which is harmful for a lot of reasons because it's like you, you know you're not trying on people's attributes like their in bodies like their costumes. But what's so interesting that's happening now is now you see this shift right, and so now all these people are taking out their fillers and get rid getting yeah. rid of their BBLs and it's like oh no no heroin chic is back in now guys you know and so it's like. Oh, okay. So why would I, or any of us strive for these ideas yeah. of what the, the, the in body is when that body is always going to change and our bodies are going to keep getting older because that's what they were designed to do. Absolutely. Also, can we talk about how, as you leave diet culture and like body obsession stuff, suddenly you have the time and energy and money and everything to like actually cultivate qualities and experiences and accomplishments and hobbies and God knows what that like really make you feel worthy as a person. Absolutely. That actually bring you joy. You get to decide like, what do I like to do? What do, what are my hobbies? What are my creative endeavors? What experiences do I want to have? Absolutely. For a very long time, 
my like best skill in life was like makeup. Mm, yeah. And I just think, I mean, whatever, I have a lot of compassion for younger me, but I'm just also like, what else could I have done? What if I, what if I could have spoken French by now? Oh, listen, I had to spend 20 hours. I, I was spending 20 hours a week in the gym. That is a part-time job. Yeah. I could be fluent in another language. Oh my God. So many things with those hours of my life, right? For like uh, years, I was doing that. Absolutely. So what does it look like for you on the other side? Like having found body liberation, what is your relationship to self-worth now? Oh my gosh. You know, I just feel so different now. And I like, how do I even explain it? It's hard to put into words, but number one, I know that I'm like inherently worthy simply because I exist. And then I believe that to be true for all of us. Um, but you know, it's more than just the words, it's just like how I feel and how I live my yeah. life. I mean, just carry, like, honestly caring so little about what other people think about my appearance. And I, I went on a little rant about this on social media the other day, you know, you're seeing all, we, we are seeing all this marketing around get summer body ready and all this stuff. And I'm like, y'all, I literally don't care anymore what people think about my body. And, you know, I'm heterosexual. And I was like, I have so decentered the male gaze because it's irrelevant. <laughs> it's irrelevant, right? Yeah. I can't think of anything any less interesting or relevant. Relevant. And so it, but when I have like really fully embraced them in life, it just brings so much ease and joy. Yeah. You know, like I just feel so free in my everyday life now. And and that's why also I wanted to write the book because I want so many of us to experience that feeling um, and to be able to navigate the world in that way. Oh, I love that. Uh, okay. So when I asked you what was lighting you up right now to sort of prepare for this episode, you mentioned that you're really leaning into the pleasure that comes along with body liberation. So I was hoping to hear a little bit about what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, going back to that question about like how, what, how many things it took away from me, like reclaiming those things for myself. Right. And so it's like pleasure and eating. I mean, being in the fitness industry, we've so long heard this term food is fuel, right? Which like completely takes the joy and fun out of eating. <laughs> so, <laughs> it does. Like, it takes all of the funness out of it, right? I and, really believe that for so long too. I did too. Oh I did and I'm like, no, of course eating should be pleasurable. Like why shouldn't eating be fun? And um, I already mentioned Jessica Wilson, but she did this amazing post where she talked about if we treated um, food, this idea of like food only as fuel, if we treated sex that same way, like we're only having sex for reproduction because it shouldn't be a pleasure. I mean, I guess some people do. I mean, some people, I feel sorry. <laughs> like, I don't want to live like that. Like, be a pleasurable experience. And, and it brings comfort and joy and like community. So like yeah. rediscovering that. And then, you know, just like traveling and not caring about like, oh, I don't go to the gym when I travel. Oh, who cares? Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah not packing workout clothes because I don't care and just doing what feels good and just like living experiences, living life free and just like finding pleasure in the everyday. And again, yeah. rediscovering new hobbies. I took a pottery class recently because I'm like, that sounds like fun. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, how am I creating a life that feels really pleasurable? And there was a creator that talked about um, having multiple streams of joy. And I thought it was so amazing because they were talking about in terms of like dating relationships and how so many women, unfortunately, place this idea of being in a relationship as like, this is the thing I need sure. to be happy. And she was like, I feel like, you know, dating is one of multiple avenues that brings joy to my life. And so how am I creating a life that feels really full, whether it be in my career or my friendship circles, my hobbies, yeah. my family, so that, okay, if I'm not dating someone, it doesn't feel like the end of the world because that's just one of my streams of joy. Right. So that sound, that's so beautiful. Just the idea of having multiple streams of joy in your life. And I'm like, oh, that's what, that's what I want my life to yeah. feel like. Oh, I love that. I also, I feel like that's very similar to what I teach around self-worth. Like I, I say to like picture your self-worth, like a, like a little table. And if you've just got the one leg, it is going to be so easy to fall down and never be stable. Whereas if, I mean, let's say you held on to your body image issues and food control, but you also had 10 other sources of self-worth that were rich and stable, like it just would not be able to fuck you up as bad, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. 100%. So uh -huh. I just do it. Creating lives that feel really balanced are, is so helpful for us. 
Oh yeah. Also like we say worthy a lot and I think everyone gets what it means. Like I felt worthier or I don't feel worthy enough, but it's a relative word, right? It's like worthy of what? Yes. And this is definitely part of it. Pleasure, joy, rest, ease. Like some of it is big, you know, connection, belonging, respect, love. But like, this is all part of that same word. Like if you've been taught you're not worthy of those things or you have to earn those things by doing something to change yourself, then you don't get to even enjoy them. Even if you did them, you wouldn't enjoy them. Absolutely, right? Like you have to, we have to put ourselves in a space to even, yes, embrace and enjoy those things in our lives. Yeah. Okay, so uh, before we talk about your book, which is called Body Liberation, I wanted to get your definition of what body liberation means. Absolutely. So when I talk about body liberation, uh, I mean a few things. Number one, um, for me, when I I talk about body liberation, I'm talking about one, the idea that uh, this body, this vessel that we're residing in is literally uh, just the vessel, right? It's just the thing that's allowing us to have this human experience. It's not who we are. And I know that might sound a little like woo-woo to people, but when I really truly think of it, I'm like, you know, Stephanie Chen is a creator on... um, Instagram. And she had this really beautiful quote that this body is the keeper of our magic. And so I think this body is just the vessel that's allowing us to fulfill our soul's purpose, whatever that is. And so for me, the the goal of body liberation is not to be able to like look in the mirror one day and love everything you see. Cause I also think that's unrealistic. That's just not the way the world works. Like I don't yeah. want to set ourselves up to believe that one day that we're going to achieve that, but it's to understand that regardless of how I'm feeling and when I, that, that reflection in the mirror, I'm worthy of respect and I can treat my body with respect regardless of the reflection I'm seeing back. Um, and it's also about being able to like cultivate joy um, and that sense of like freedom within ourselves while we understanding that we, you know, understanding the, the systems that would have us at war with ourselves. So it's like we're working to divest from the systems while also leaning into embracing the bodies that the vessels, the bodies that we have and, and, and all of their iterations, because we understand that our body's going to have all these different iterations because that's what bodies were created to do. Yep. Um, and, and so how are we cultivating joy in this vessel? Okay. So I'm not surprised by this. I had gotten this feeling, but that's like very close to how I define body neutrality. I know that a lot of people define it differently, but the way that like I wrote my book was very much like along those lines. So uh, it makes sense that I like vibe with your work so hard. Um, I haven't, I bought your book on Audible. I haven't gotten to listen to it yet. And it's funny because um, you've mentioned Jessica Wilson a few times. I'm actually reading It's Always Been Ours right now because I just had her on my podcast. (laughs) So good. It's such a good book. Um, Yeah, she's, her her work is amazing. Yeah. Um, I know you guys did a collaboration, right? We're doing it tonight, actually. Oh, it's, oh, so cool. Yeah. I wish I could go. That sounds so fun. Okay. Um, So yeah, I'd love to have you talk a bit about what the book is about and who it's for. Yeah. So when I think about who it's for, I literally believe it's for anybody who is residing in a body. um, And that's all of us, really. I think we've all had experiences within this vessel that are are challenging, right? And, And so the book is about understanding a lot of things. So I talk about body pos- the differences between body positivity and neutrality and liberation. Yeah. I talk about uh, like really set a foundation for understanding like the the roots of like racism and white supremacy and how that you know how that's affecting all of us in our bodies. Um, and then I talk a lot about wor- working towards personal liberation, but then with the ultimate goal of collective liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, and Audre Lorde, her words guide me through a lot of the work I do. And very paraphrased uh, quote of Audre Lorde is that none of us are free unless all of us are free. And so it's this real understanding is that like when we come to this place of personal liberation, and again, we already spoke to this, it frees up all this energy and it frees up all this capacity. And it's like, how can we take some of that energy and some of that capacity to work towards collective liberation? Because it's yeah. not just about us finding our individual freedom. It's about all of us being able able to reside in a society that gives us all that freedom. And so that future generations hopefully won't have as difficult a time navigating all of this as we have. Yes. And I feel like the natural result, honestly, like at least for my clients, I feel like I never have to be like, now you should start thinking about collective liberation. It's like, you just want to, once you learn this stuff and you free yourself from it, you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Why does everybody not know this? And you start like educating the people in your life and you start, you know, it just is the natural result once you pull back the curtain and you're like, oh, that was all bullshit. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I'm not going to stand for that anymore. Yeah. I want other people to know it's bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I do love having conversations with my clients when they're like, so I sent my mom your podcast or whatever, you know, it's like these little things where they're like, so somebody who's deep in diet culture now has to deal with me being annoying and like pestering them with all of this new information. I'm like, I love it. <laughs> Gotta share the love. Um, what would you hope? Well, actually it's been out for a while now. So maybe you already like know what readers are taking away from it. What, what kind of feedback have you gotten for what they're taking away? Yeah, the feedback has actually been really powerful. Um, and uh, honestly, when I wrote the book, I, I even said this in the book, I'm like, if one person moves towards liberation, I feel like mm-hmm. the book is supposed to do. Um, but so many readers have just really reached out, letting me know like how powerful it's been for them and how it's helped them shift their mindset and how- mm-hmm it's the book they needed to read when they were younger. And I love that. Yeah. It just makes me feel like, you know, I wanted to write a book, not just to write a book, you know, I wanted to write a book that I felt like was going to be impactful for people and that was going to help people on their journey. Um, and the feedback so far that is that it's doing that. And that makes me very happy and fulfilled. And as you know, writing a book is a journey, not for the faint of heart. (laughs) (laughs) Really not for the paper. Oh, part, really? Right? I had a very easy breezy time with it. No, no struggles over here. No mental health breakdowns. No breakdowns at all on me, right? <laughs> um, and so it just, I'm like, yes, I feel, I feel like I, I already knew it was like all the hard times are gonna be worth it, but I just like, wow, I did the thing that I set out to accomplish. Or and, and I've, that makes me feel really good. I and it makes that. me feel uh I just think that there's there's so many people, especially now, like I I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like in 2020, it felt like we were making progress and making strides and in towards like inclusion, inclusion, but also like more, um, representation in terms of bodies and more like it was, it felt like it was becoming more stream mainstream to yeah. be more accepting to all different types of bodies and to like embrace ourselves. And then I feel like in 2023 and like end of 2020, it felt like we we're going backwards in time. Mm. And now I feel like with Ozempic and Manjaro and all of these things and the yeah. new, it feels like a resurgence of diet culture. Right. Which is also really interesting because I think, um, of during 2020 also like a uh, resurgence of like anti-racism and now it feels like backlash to that. And so I feel like anytime we feel like we're making progress in some area, capitalism, diet culture, whatever, the diet industry is like, nope, not going that direction. Right. And so I think now more than ever, we need more people having these conversations and writing books about these things yeah. because many people that I think truly need these messages. When I am being very kind and generous in my perspective, (laughs) I will often think that the seeds that got planted and the feathers that got ruffled in 2020 are now like coming to fruition. So we haven't seen the change that it, we thought it was going to be yet because all that was, was seed planting and like, then yeah, backlash and everything. So my, I don't always feel this way, but my, um, most generous view is that we are heading into the revolution we thought we were having then. And listen, I hope that is, I, yeah. I and I haven't thought about it in that way. And maybe that is the case, right? And I would hope that we, I hope that's, I hope that comes to yeah. fruition. Absolutely. Same. Okay. So the first time I met you, I think was at a Girls Gone Strong conference and you had just recently, I think, started talking about anti-racism for fitness and wellness professionals, as well as uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff. And I know that's a big part of what you do now, right? Absolutely. So what pushed you in that direction? So when, you know, Girls Gone Strong, we met, that was 2016 or 2017 probably. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's when I was really, I was working with a business coach at the time, Jill Coleman. Oh yeah. Yeah. And Jill, you know, that's like the first time that I started thinking about being a fitness professional full-time because I, all the time prior to that, I was working, um, in a corporate job and doing fitness on the side. Mm -hmm. And so I started working with Jill. I started like really like going to events, like girls gone strong, like really putting a little bit out there more and like learning more about the industry. And one thing I started to recognize is that, uh, I really felt like the industry lacked a lot of diversity in a lot of ways. And I was like, Oh, this doesn't, this doesn't feel great. Um, and so I remember, I was like actually trying to create some graphics for something I was making. And I like Googled women doing pushups and everything that came up at that time was like thin white women doing pushups and smiling. Oh is this? Yeah. And so I think that's what first made me think about like, wow, this is like 
you know, this is a problem. And so I remember when I was working with Jill, I started writing this article. It was entitled, um, is fitness only for thin white women? Um, and I, wrote I remember it. that article. Yeah. So I wrote it and I didn't publish it for a really long time. Cause I was honestly like really nervous to start. Cause that wasn't something we were talking about in the fitness industry then. Nope. It was not a conversation. So I felt really nervous about it. And it was really Jill who really encouraged me to like push publish on the article, which is also, you know, interesting at that time that I was so nervous. I mean, it's not interesting. I was so nervous to do it, but also I should be really clear that I didn't really have anybody reading my blog. So it right. was like risk, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyways, I finally pushed publish on it. And, uh, interestingly enough, it's the first thing that people actually started reading and sharing. Um, and I was like, oh, there are so many other people that feel this way and it's just not a conversation yeah. we're having yet. And so that was really, it's was, it was like ripping off a bandaid when you do the thing that you're like, the anticipation was so much worse yeah. than the thing. Um, but that really freed me up to say that, oh, I need to keep talking about the things that are of interest to me. The conversation I'm having offline, I can merge that with what I'm doing online. It's so cool. I mean, it's not cool that like, that was a problem that you needed to like do all of this work about, but it's so cool that you stepped in and pushed the conversation forward. So I remember feeling like it was very dramatic. Like it was, it, there was a huge reaction to that article yes. and a lot of conversations opening up pretty quickly after that in my Absolutely. trainer world. I mean, and no, no, it's true. I, I, I honestly was surprised that like, yes, the word dramatic. And I remember shortly after that article, um, I wrote my first article for self magazine. They, they had like seen the, the article circulated around the internet and asked me to write something about that. And I was like, oh, oh this is something that yes, we need to keep having conversations about. Um, so I feel like that was a very pivotal time and like kind of, uh, yeah, this is my, career, so to speak, in the wellness industry, that was like a big pivotal moment for me. Amazing. So what does that kind of work look like now? Like, what do you, what topics do you cover? Like, what, what do you teach? Absolutely. So um, interestingly enough, I had been doing workshops around anti-racism, DEI in 2017, 2018, and I'd get people to show up, but it wasn't like big it wasn't huge amounts of interest at that time. And then George Floyd happened, the murder of George Floyd. And everyone was like, oh my gosh, racism is real. Chrissy, we need your help right now. <laughs> so it was a wild time. I talk about this in the Jessica book. Jessica said this too. She was like, so for a while, black women were the most relevant people on the planet. In the entire world. <laughs> Honestly, like I, I joke about it in the book. And I was like, you know, that time racism almost made me rich. And I, and I, I go into more context, but it's just the yeah. fact that everyone was like, oh my gosh, we need it. It's an emergency, like right now. And I remember someone had reached out and was like, hey, I remember you did a workshop on anti-racism before. Like, is it available in your store? Can I buy it? And I was like, well, that was like three years ago. I'll just like revamp it. So I remember like revamping it and putting it on social media, thinking like, you know, a couple of people, a few people, 50 people was like, oh, maybe 50 people sign up. And literally over a thousand people signed up in one day. Whoa. Because people were like, oh my gosh, racism, we need to fix it today. And um, oh, God. after that um, workshop I did, it just was like, yeah, it, it grew really fast. Um, I started doing consultations and workshops for like companies like Nike and Google and like larger companies. Hmm. And so uh, around anti-racism, DEI, how we can put that into practice. Um, and I will say that, you know, I think Jessica may have talked on this too, that these days, those things are much lower than they were before. I feel like, you know, 2020 was a point in which people were very excited about anti-racism and then the, the excitement, because it's not exciting to be anti-racist, actually, it takes a lot of work and commitment. Uh -huh real effort to change it becomes less yeah. exciting and people are like uh eh, you know let's we uh -huh. did that. we checked that box already yeah yeah that's super interesting i didn't realize that there was such a an upsurge yes it was in, in i was case. so busy during, and it was a weird time because like also you think about the fact that like george floyd was traumatic for yeah all of us, but for black folks in particularly, right? So like I'm processing all this trauma and then we're having like protests and I live in Brooklyn, I live in New York. So there's like- Oh my gosh. Protests happening. And you're in like the most intense lockdown. I'm in the most intense place and we're in the most intense place for COVID, right? So it's just like all of these really things happening and at the same time, you're like so busy with work that, and in in a way that you're not used to and you're mm -hmm. there's always this thinking of like, well, I probably should say yes to all these things because these things yep. may not happen forever which is also true. They weren't there forever. Right. Totally and so it was just a, it was a very strange 
disorienting, traumatic, like all the things time. I bet. Yeah. So feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but my assumption is that when you do this work, you're doing it with a lot of like thin, able-bodied white folks. Majority of the time. Yes. How is that for you? (laughs) Does it ever piss you off? No, you know, that's, I think was actually the hardest part about doing so much of this work during 2020 is that it's like, you had all these folks who were like, oh my gosh, racism is real. Tell me everything I need to know. And it's like, it's frustrating because you're like this George Floyd murder was like one of a hundred murders that I could name. Right. And so I know that this work of anti-racism might feel new to you, but this is, it's exhausting to, for all of us to still be having these conversations. And so then, you know, it's like, also you have to come to this, if you're coming as an educator, you also have to meet people where they are. Right. So it's like meeting people with compassion. So I remember like having these conversations with people and then like after the calls being like so drained or frustrated or exhausted because Mm -hmm. it's like, I'm explaining to someone why white privilege isn't a bad word and why you have like what that means, right? right? Things that feel very fundamental and basic and, and like trying to navigate people's feelings because they're, if you're a white person coming to work of anti-racism and you haven't explored these topics before, there's a lot of shame, guilt, judge, um, reactionary feelings that come up or different right and so I'm also like helping people navigate those feelings while also feeling like oh my god I can't believe we are still having Mm -hmm. these conversations so it can be very challenging and I think even you know now all the time like you know any article I write or anything I write around race somebody is guaranteed that there's a person who's going to email me to tell me why you know or say derogatory comments or say you know all these like really terrible things and so it's like you're speaking the truth and you're doing work that you know is important. And at the same time, you're like, okay, but I need to manage my own mental health and have some boundaries around this work as well. Good Lord. Yeah. Cause I just think about the shit that triggers me. Like if I had to hold space for the perpetuators of harm, I don't think I would do a very good job all the time. It's hard sometimes, right? To be like, okay, I'm coming to this space because I'm going to educate folks. I recognize that they're probably going to say things that are going to trigger me. And I also am not in the capacity to react to that because I am the educator in this mm-hmm. space. Space for what's happening. And it, yeah, it can be really hard. And there, there definitely was like, I got so busy. I remember at the end of 2020 and like into 2021, like I just took a break from all that work for a while. And I used to do, or I used to, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say I took a break. I changed some of the work that I was doing because I yeah. used to do like long-term consulting with companies. And I was like, I can't do that anymore. Cause that was really draining. So I was like, for my own sanity, I need to cut that part of my work out. Um, and so it was like also a good practice for me around learning how I want to be engaging. Um, yeah. Yeah. Boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hold your humanity and mental health above everything else, but I also just want to say, I'm personally very grateful that you are doing this work and spending that time and energy. (laughs) It's so important. And I'm very grateful. Um, okay. So I wasn't sure if I was going to ask this, but I'm going to go for it. Uh, given how I look and how much body privilege I have personally, I sometimes struggle with the ethics of taking up space in the body neutrality movement. And I try to use that privilege to bring the body neutrality, liberation movement, everything to people who would find it more palatable coming from someone like me. So that's kind of where I, when I go back and forth, that's like what I use to, to go back. But I am genuinely curious to hear your thoughts on this because I respect your opinion so much and I feel so aligned with your work. And sometimes I feel like by aligning with your work, I'm like, I should get out of here. <laughs> Like, you know what I mean? So I would love if you felt comfortable being totally transparent. I invite that. I would just love if you had any thoughts. Absolutely. So, I mean, for one, I'm, I think that we need a lot of voices in the space talking about these conversations. What I do think is super important, which I know that you do. And I encourage anyone who is in a white body and who's, you know, has a certain level of privilege is that we're always talking about these intersections, right? And then we're Mm -hmm. always talking about privilege and positionality and that we're including like the intersection of like white supremacy and racism and how this plays out in in all of these conversations and also acknowledging right that their privilege allows you to show up in certain ways that maybe others of us yeah. can't. 
I think it's really important to lead with that always. Um, but to say that, you know, only black and brown women should be having the conversation, I don't think is necessarily where I stand on the issue. Um, I do think we should always be working to center those voices and to uplift those voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, but reality of what you said is that, and, and this it's such a nuanced thing to say because it also is the result of white supremacy, but the yeah. reality is that certain people like learning information from people who look like themselves, which is literally white supremacy. I'm like, I'm not downplaying that. I know. It's white supremacy, um, but that is also the reality of it. So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a really, I think it's a, a really nuanced conversation. And I think about this a lot, not just in the body positivity or body liberation neutrality space, but also in like the anti-racism space, right? Because I think of people like Robin DiAngelo, who wrote the book, White Fragility, and literally all of the information she learned is not from her experiences of her own because she's right. a white woman, right? And so it's like, but Robin is able to profit from the work of anti-racism in a way that even black and brown folks aren't able to profit from the work of mm-hmm. anti-racism. Right. And so that's where I have very nuanced feelings about it because it's like, that is the way that white supremacy operates. Yep. That a white person could pro- profit and, you know, like I saw, I saw this recent, not, oh, this was like during 2020, but like Rob, it was public knowledge. Robin was making like $30,000 for speaking engagements. And it's like, oh. so a white woman can show up and talk about anti-racism the experience that she's never had and make more money than black and brown folks can about that. Like for me, that's a problem. And yeah. so I think, like, thinking about how you're operating in systems and what feels equitable. And then like for like, if for anyone that as, as a white person, when you find yourself in a situation like that, for me, it's like, okay, what do I do now? Because I know that th- I know that this is white supremacy and how it's operating. Mm-hmm. And how am I going to respond to that? that for me is what I think we always have to ask ourselves. That was a fantastic answer. Thank you. (laughs) Also, I was thinking of Robin D'Angelo's book as you were talking because I had that experience. I had read at that point, like two or three books on racism. So this was very early days introduction. And she wrote the book that made me connect to it for the first time. And I later on was just so pissed to be, I was like, I'm the the white supremacist fucking statistic here who I was like, oh, she really gets me. <laughs> like, of course I was. And I feel so hesitant to ever recommend her book now, knowing all of this stuff that's come out since. But also like, I recognize that there are people who aren't ready for the books wit- written that are like black and brown people who definitely need you know, they need their voices. Like they deserve the payment. They deserve all these things. But if somebody's not there yet, God, it's tough. It's very tough. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for your answer. I really appreciate that. And I am always, um, yeah, always, I think just, uh, I I think it's healthy to stay aware of my positioning in a space that is not exactly social justice, but is so linked to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I just think, you know, there's always things for us. To, I, I used to recommend what Robin D'Angelo's book, but I mean, and mm. I felt like, uh, yeah, like early 2017, 2018, I was recommending Robin's book. And then I thought about him like, this doesn't make any sense. And there's also so many phenomenal, mm. and, and even like, now we're going down a rabbit hole, but even this idea of white fragility, that, that white folks are fragile, right? And mm-hmm. that white, and how we talk to them because they're fragile is white supremacy, right? Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, and we just, we're all learning and growing. And as we learn and grow, we recognize more things and we're like, oh yeah, that doesn't really make sense. <laughs> Even I recorded that episode with Jessica and I loved her and found her so warm and, and lovely. And it was, it was a great episode and I'm listening to the audible version and I like took my headphones out at one point and sent to my partner, like, I am about to say something that is just pure racism. It's like, I feel like I'm being like, I feel like I'm getting in trouble. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was like, yeah, you you probably are. And I was like, I know, and it's good for me to hear it, but I feel like, I feel like a kid in class, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and then I guess why doing this work is challenging and it's hard, right? Cause it like exposes parts of yourself and you're like, oh my gosh, I feel yeah. very exposed. Like I said, I feel like the class, the student class, like I did this bad yeah. fighting, right? Cause it's all, it's like white women is, is just such a major focus. I'm like, hit me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else that you want to say today? This has been fantastic. Um, anything else that's coming up or that you want to share? No, I just really enjoyed our conversation though. I thought it was really amazing. I loved it. Fantastic. Tell people where they can find you. 
Absolutely. So my website is chrissyking.com. You can subscribe to my newsletter there. I'm getting way better at sending out a weekly newsletter. It's a work in progress. Nice. Though. Um, and then Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, it's I am Chrissy King. And my book, The Body Liberation Project is out now and it's available everywhere books are sold. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on here. Uh, this was a fantastic episode and everyone, you know where to find me, Jesse Neal. Ooh, let me try that again. jessineeland.com and at jessineeland on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, wherever you want to find me. And uh, thanks for listening and I'll catch you all next week. <laughs>